This afternoon I'd like to explore with you a, a teaching, a, a sutta that I particularly like, I particularly resonate with, that describes a kind of a path, an arc of the practice. How the practice unfolds from the beginning where we are meeting our reactive minds and what happens as the path unfolds. The sutta is in the Majjhima Nikaya, it's number seven, called the simile of the cloth. And it begins with the simile. The simile is uh, about a cloth that's stained. And the Buddha says if this, if a stained cloth If a dyer takes a stained cloth and tries to dye it any color at all, that cloth is not going to take up the dye evenly. It's going to be, um, it it will look impure in color because the places where the stains are will have a darker coloring than the other places. And so the stains create a, a, a cloth that doesn't look very beautiful. And he, he says, if, if we have a pure cloth, a cloth that doesn't have any stains on it, that cloth will take up the dye evenly and be pure in color. He makes an analogy. He says, when the mind is stained, and the word actually, the word here is kilesa. Some of you may be familiar with this word kilesa, the Pali word, often translated as defilement. But the word literally means stained. And this is actually one of the few places this word is used in the suttas. And it's used in reference to this analogy, that the the kalesas are understood as an analogy of stains in our mind. Stains that can be purified. Stains that can be cleansed. And so... The Buddha says, when the mind is stained, an unhappy destination may be expected. When the mind is pure, a happy destination may be expected. In my sense, although the the analogy isn't clearly this way, it's not clearly described as as being, uh, you know, part of the analogy isn't described as the work to clean the cloth of stains. It seems very, uh, very much implied that that is the work that we do with the stains, the, the stains in our mind, the reactivity in our mind. That we explore ways to clean our minds, to purify, to, to uh, allow the defilements, the stains, the reactivity to weaken lessen and come out of our minds. And in this particular teaching, the the Buddha gives a long list of defilements, a long list of stains in the mind. He said, "What what are the stains of the mind? 
Covetous and covetousness and unrighteous greed are stains in the mind. Ill will, anger, resentment, contempt, insolence, envy, avarice, deceit, fraud, obstinacy, rivalry, conceit, arrogance, vanity, negligent are stains in the mind. And um, the, the teaching begins, I'm going to kind of give you an overview of the teaching first. It begins by saying that essentially we need to work to cleanse the stains. And the, the work there that is encouraged of us is understanding. And we've talked about this a lot. We've talked about the understanding. Understanding suffering allows for a transformation. And so that, that's, that's, that's our work. We understand. Understanding these stains. The understanding leads to or inclines the mind towards an abandoning, a releasing. And I'll talk, I'll talk more about this in a bit, but, but so that's, that's the, the work is the, uh, it's kind of like, I, I think of the, um, the understanding as being like, okay, you put that cloth in the, in the washing machine and the, 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 the practice, the mindfulness and the, and the wise understanding are like the soap and we're going to be, you know, working, we're working this, uh, this mind with the soap and the water and the energy. I think of the energy as being like the agitation in the, in the washing tub. And that draws the stains in the analogy of the, of the, the stained cloth, that draws the, 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 the dirt, the stains out into the water so that it can be released and washed away. And very similarly, in a way, the the mindfulness and wisdom kind of function like that soap to, 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 to transform the stains so that they can be released. And once there is that uh, understanding and abandoning, the, the sutta proceeds with a kind of a very natural unfolding, a kind of a lawfully unfolding natural direction We've talked about the way that the mind kind of inclines towards well-being as a natural tendency as the mind gets good information, as the mind begins to see actually what's going on inside more clearly. The ways that we um, misunderstand where happiness will be found kind of get corrected and the mind kind of charts a new course. And that charting, that, that new course that's charted, the, in this teaching, it, it kind of lays it out. What happens? What's the unfolding in our path? What happens as wisdom is, is beginning to lead? And so with the um, abandoning of the stains in the mind, it said there's a very natural confidence that arises, trust, when we talked about the other day. Trust in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, that trust arises. And with that trust and that confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the next, the next natural following from that is that from that confidence, inspiration 
arises. Inspiration to engage more, more, as we talked about the other night in the, in as I spoke about trust and wisdom, kind of interweaving. That confidence creates that condition for inspiration, and and because we're engaging, there is a gladness, rapture, tranquility, concentration that follow. This is what this. Sutta points to that there's a natural unfolding towards these beautiful, wholesome states of mind. And following from that, it points to a natural arising or the direction being towards the mind of metta. the Brahma-viharas, mindfulness, metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity, being a kind of the natural result of that unfolding. And then it points to how, with right view, we also see that those beautiful qualities as not something to cling to. And with that, the mind releases. So to me, this is an, there's an, inspir- there's an inspirational quality to this teaching. That this, this whole arc of practice is set into motion through the understanding of the stains of the reactive mind. That's where the the work is in the practice, really, I think. Creating the conditions for the mindfulness to meet that reactivity and allow for that, that alchemy, that, that transformation, that as if the, the mindfulness and wisdom are a soap kind of meeting the, the defilement, meeting the stains, and bringing those reac- reactions into consciousness. We've talked a lot about that. Pulling the, you know, how the mindfulness kind of can pull what's not seen reactivity, attitudes of mind, of greed, aversion, delusion, perhaps that are not seen, pulling those into consciousness. And in awareness, met with mindfulness and wisdom, something different happens. The understanding there, the, the phrase in the, in the text, uh, the, the phrase here is, When one understands that ill will, I'll pick one. When one understands that ill will is a stain in the mind, one abandons it. And so I want to just, you know, just, we've been doing this, we've been working with this, but I want to kind of unpack that a little bit. So when one understands 
that ill will stains the mind. That's essentially understanding that the reactivity is suffering, is dukkha, is arising in this moment. As that happens, our minds begin to see their own contribution to the reactivity. And through that understanding, seeing, seeing the mind seeing that it's, it's, it's creating that, str- that struggle, actually. It's creating it internally. And as the mind sees that, it naturally begins to understand how to release it. It's as if the, the mind begins to understand the danger or the... It understands it as a stain. It understands it as something that is not helpful. So the next part abandons, one abandons it. Understanding ill will, understanding resentment is a stain in the mind, one abandons it. Now that phrasing, you know, the way we often think of the word abandoning might be as a kind of an active thing. That word in English has some connotations um, that may not be so... There may be some kind of un, un, um, unpleasant connotations to that word or, or kind of ideas about that, what abandoning is, that it's a negative thing. Sometimes we might think of, like the word, we might think of abandoning a child, you know, that, that word could be associated in that way and, and that would not be a good thing to abandon a child. But there are other connotations to that word abandoning that may speak a little more to what I think is being pointed to here. In particular, um, you know, we may abandon something when we see it's just not useful anymore. You know, when, when we, we recognize that uh, in particular, um, something that we have or own is, is like broken and unfixable, like we'll abandon it. We'll just, like, yeah, yeah, let that one go. Or the phrase, abandon ship. You know, the, the, the connotation there is that when you understand that it's dangerous to stay on the ship, you want to get off the ship. And it's a very natural movement. You know, you wouldn't cling to the ship as it's going down. You'd want to abandon it. And that, to me, is more the kind of connotation of abandoning here, that, that the abandoning isn't necessarily something that, that we try to do with the, uh, the reactivity in our mind. It's more the natural result of understanding the reactivity. 
as we understand the reactivity more fully, the mind naturally understands this isn't useful. The mind begins to abandon it. The more we understand it, our reactivity, the more we understand, not only is this not useful, this is, this is harmful. This hurts, this is harmful, this, this is dangerous for the mind. And again, the mind begins to understand, to abandon it, to let it go. And so my understanding of this abandoning is that it is the result of the understanding. Now there are times, of course, that we can, we do have a sense of stepping aside from something that's catching us. And that there are times when we are really stuck or caught in a particular reactivity. And we've talked about this, that sometimes if you're, if you're kind of being pulled into the rabbit hole of, of a reactivity, it may be time to redirect. We may think of that kind of as abandoning. You know, it's like, you know, just don't even try to be mindful of that right now because it's taken the mind down. And so, you know, we may be able to actively do a redirect there. And that, that is useful and, and is helpful. My understanding of that is that's a stepping stone towards what we could call the true abandoning. That there are times in our practice that we have to actively step away from something challenging or actively redirect the attention so that we're not overwhelmed by some kind of reactivity. And yet that's not the abandoning that leads to release. To me, this uh, the, the abandoning that's being spoken to here is an abandoning of release, of, n- of the mind naturally releasing something because it understands it's not useful. It's dangerous. And following from this understanding, the confidence arises. It says, when one has known that resentment defiles the mind, resentment stains the mind, when one understands that resentment stains the mind and has abandoned it, so the, the release has happened, one acquires confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And to me, this is also a very natural result. We talked about this a little bit with the, the talk on trust, that how we begin doing some engagement. We, we, you know, we hear the teachings, we, we engage with them. And then we see through that engagement how helpful that is. And to me, the the witnessing of that abandoning, the witnessing of the release, as the mind sees that release from suffering, there is no doubt in the value of this practice. When the mind sees that that letting go happens and recognizes that it has happened through the engagement, the understanding, when the mind sees that, it does not doubt that this is the path. 
we're on board. We are saying, yep, I'll keep doing this. This, this, I can see this works. I see that it works. I see that there's release, freedom possible. Like that little bit of linoleum. We may just get a little tiny glimpse of a release from something. And the mind says, yeah, that's, that's the way to head. And so that's, to me, that confidence. It's heading us in that direction. From that confidence, more inspiration, more uh, encouragement to engage. And the, the um, teaching says, uh, when one understands, when one considers, I'm possessed of unwavering confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. One gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains gladness connected with the Dhamma. When one's glad, rapture is born. In one who's rapturous, the body becomes tranquil. In one whose body feels tranquil, one feels pleasure. In one who feels pleasure, there's concentration. Again, described as a very natural unfolding. This is a, a sequence that's repeated in several places in the suttas, this kind of natural unfolding. It, it's kind of started or initiated in various ways. In this case, the initiation is confidence. And with that confidence, there's the inspiration and the delight and the joy and the tranquility and the happiness and the concentration that very naturally follow. In another, another text, I'll read this because it's a slightly different languaging. It came up earlier in a group, so I thought of it. For one who is virtuous, there's no need for an act of will. May non-remorse arise in me. It's natural that non-remorse will arise in one who is virtuous. For one who is free of remorse, there's no need for an act of will. May gladness arise in me. It is natural that gladness will arise in one who is free from remorse. For one who is glad, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise. It is a natural law that joy will arise in one who is glad at heart. It moves, moves on. Serenity, happiness, concentration. and on through the natural unfolding. This is a different kind of trajectory through the unfolding of the path. The Buddha offers different kind of trajectories through how the path unfolds. And so following in this particular case, the sutta of the simile of the cloth, you know, essentially we can, we can go back to the simile a little bit here as the release, the mind is released from those stains, it's as if the cloth has become pure, more clean, more pure. And, and thinking about that pure cloth being put into dye, a vat of dye, you know, what happens there? It's, it's like you don't have to do too much work when you're dyeing cloth. You drop it in the vat, leave it there for a little while, it absorbs the dye. Very naturally, it, it's, it absorbs it. 
It's a natural thing that it pulls it in and pulls it in evenly through the cloth. And then so then you can remove the the cloth and you have your clean your your purely stained dyed cloth. And so kind of similarly I think with respect to these wholesome qualities that are natural unfoldings. It's not that there's no work to do here. But it feels more like an inclining in the direction of to me. Like we have to remember to put that cloth in the vat. We have to do something there. But then the cloth and the dye do their work there. In this case, it's kind of like we have to recall or remember the direction of joy and happiness and tranquility and concentration. But that as those as those release, as the as the stains, as the reactivity releases, there can there can be a very natural movement in the in that direction if it is simply kind of inclined towards. And so it's more like that inclining in that direction that it will follow along. And likewise, the next piece is the that naturally love. Compassion, joy, and equanimity result. So again, more wholesome qualities very naturally following in the direction. And here's what it says here about that. So it says, in one who feels pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. And one abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness. Likewise, the second, the third, the fourth, so above, below, around, and everywhere, pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness. And so this is, this is a, it, again, it sounds to me like a very natural outcome that that with that concentrated mind there's the possibility of of kind of taking up the metta as a dye takes up cloth and abiding there pervading that metta constant compassion joy and equanimity i want to take some time with this part to talk about explore how and why it would be the natural result. Love would be the natural result of this understanding. The other night I I talked a little bit about this in the reflection at night, nine o'clock, about how the the exploration of understanding needs that encouragement towards allowing and, and how that allowing itself is already in the direction of love. I spoke about that, that piece of it the other night, that the attitude 
of allowing, of, of having that perspective of, yes, everything is allowed, opening to the intimacy and connection with all experience, right there in the very meeting of experience, whatever that experience is, whether it's reactivity, something unpleasant, a struggle, a dukkha, or something beautiful, the way that we meet it inclines towards connectivity, love. Like, like we are cultivating a loving awareness in the very act of opening to our reactivity. And so this is one of the ways that love is kind of a natural outcome. Because even as we are exploring being with reactivity, we are cultivating that part of our minds. We're cultivating, if we, if we kind of turn to it and recognize it, it's easy when we're, it's easy to forget it when we are attending to dukkha. It can be, you know, it's like, kind of like we're, we're involved in the dukkha and we're, we're not so much aware of the, the, the field of loving awareness that can be meeting that. And this is part of why I keep encouraging, check the relationship. Over time, the relationship becomes more and more one of allowing, more and more one that's imbued with love, compassion. And as we actually notice that, I said the other day, as we notice wholesome qualities, it strengthens them. This is a beautiful piece of mindfulness. It's this great magic quality, weakening the unwholesome and strengthening the wholesome. And so sometimes we do have to, sometimes it's very natural to recognize the ease, the peace, the okayness, the equanimity, the compassion, sometimes the joy, sometimes the love that can be in the field of wise awareness, of wise attitude. Sometimes it's very natural and sometimes we actually have to orient in that direction. And, and kind of be curious about what is this okayness? So beginning to really be curious when it feels like the mind is okay, let yourself hang out in that field of okayness. Maybe it feels like calm. Or maybe it has more of a quality of peace. Maybe in that peace there's a little bit of delight in the absence of reactivity in the mind. A delight in the, the non-adding to our reactivity. So really encouraging that checking into the, the attitude, not just to find, I mean, we can tend to incline that way. It's like, oh, check the attitude. Is there greed, aversion, delusion there? And we forget to say, is there okayness there? 
forget to, we forget. It's like we skip over that part sometimes. We miss. Okayness is worth attending to. And sometimes, too, I find it, this is interesting. T- sometimes we, with an, a, a, an attention towards, I would say this particular practice, as I said the other day, is it's a wisdom-oriented practice. We are exploring, connecting with wisdom to our experience and seeing how does that wisdom transform and there can be a a kind of an inclining for some people not all for some people there can be a kind of inclining towards equanimity or just understanding it's all conditioned and and so it's kind of the feeling of that is very much it doesn't have it doesn't have a kind of an emotional tone to it it's more of a wisdom tone at times Sometimes in meeting that or stepping into that okayness, it feels like it's just understood and it doesn't particularly feel like it has a quality of love or compassion. Or, um, and it, well, at, at points in my retreat, I, I was kind of interested in, in a kind of response I was getting um, as I was meeting with people. Um, when I was a, a fairly new, a newer teacher, I would sit in the room with people and speak with them, and and my experience was really one of being full as as fully present as I could, and right there, and I felt like I was really present with them. The feeling was one of equanimity, of ease, of non-reactivity. But people were saying things to me like, "Wow, I really feel your compassion." And I was thinking, hmm, that's not my experience. I'm not feeling compassion. And this went on for quite a while, actually. And at one point I, you know, I talked to a couple of other teachers about it and several of them just kind of dismissed it. They said, oh, it's there. And I thought, I'm not seeing it. And finally I talked to a teacher who said, your mind is orienting to emptiness in relationship. It's orienting to uh, just conditionality, essentially. It's orienting to that side of experience. He said, see what happens if you orient to connection, orient to the personal in that relationship. And so, the next opportunity I had, which was actually just minutes later, I sat down and, and consciously turned the mind towards relation rather than condition, you know, just, you know, conditionality. Consciously oriented the mind towards relationship. Boy, compassion was right there. It was right there, but I didn't know how to turn towards it. Even having people say, oh, it's there, it's like, Really? <laughs> but that instruction, you know, it was a little turning. A, a, it's like orienting in a different way towards relationship. And that really, to me, felt like that instruction that my colleague gave me was like, that put that cloth right in the vat of the compassion dye. 
It was right there, available to be taken up. Very little effort to do that. And so this is partly what I mean, too, by some work, some effort sometimes that needs to happen. It's not a lot. Again, it's kind of more an orientation, or a, a shift of perspective sometimes that might support this inclining towards these wholesome qualities beginning to be taken up. I love this analogy of the dye being taken up. That it is very much that way with these wholesome qualities. They are taken up. There's some other ways that uh, it feels to me that metta is released or seen or naturally the result of this understanding that happens. One um, one way that I've been exploring, talking about lately is, and I mentioned it in, in a couple of the groups, that in my in my in my own understanding of dukkha and through the practice of watching it seeing it over and over again seeing my relationship to it seeing my attitudes about it my views about what i think i need to do with it etc and then at times being more willing to just allow just be willing to witness it trusting that mindfulness and wisdom will do their job, I begin to understand something about the nature of our reactivity. And it seems to be, I'd say, whatever suffering is there, there is some piece of that suffering that has threads uh, in it there are threads in that suffering that are connected to wanting to be happy, safe, healthy, at ease. That, that when, we, when we see how our minds are getting all tangled up, we see that, you know, our mind keeps getting entangled with those patterns because in some way, in some deluded, confused way, our mind thinks, this is going to make me happy. And so there is a connection to that deep wish for happiness, all tied up in our reactivity. And another set of things that's all tied up in that reactivity is another set of threads of experience is impermanent, it's unreliable, it's uncontrollable. And those two kinds of things going on that we begin to, you know, we, we, we all know at some level the unreliability, uncontrollability of our experience, only somehow we think we've made a mistake 
or I'm wrong, or I failed somehow. If I'm not able to control, there must be something I'm doing wrong. As opposed to beginning to recognize, no, this is just truth. This is truth. And to me what it seems that what our reactivity is kind of the nature of our reactivity is that it's a tangle of the threads of wanting to be happy, healthy, and safe, and the threads of the truth, of impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable. And that's what our suffering is. It's a tangle around those two kind of these, this, these deep wishes which are metta, deep wishes for happiness, well-being, those are metta. That's a very natural, wholesome part of us as human beings, that we wish for that for ourselves, for our families, for for our fellow human beings. That is not going to go away. And the truth, also not going to go away. And somehow, our minds, those get tangled up because our minds feel somehow like if I can't be in control, I mean, if I, if, if I can't be in control and I can't be uh, free of, if I can't be safe, for instance, then I shouldn't want to be safe. Or if I, I want to be safe and I can't be safe, then I f- need to fix the thing I can't be safe about. So there's this this tangle there. And the suffering, I think, is in the tangle. It's knotted up because of misunderstanding, being confused about these two, the deep wish for well-being and the truth. There's a a misunderstanding that somehow I'm somehow flawed if I can't either completely fully accept these truths and not want these things. That's that's one way this, this can happen. We bludgeon ourselves with the truth. It's like, yeah, it's uncontrollable. I know it's uncontrollable. So I'm I shouldn't want to be safe. I shouldn't want to be happy. It's like that is that is not going to fly with that deep inner natural movement towards well-being. And so this this knot that's happening, this tangle, to me it's, it's, uh, it's the mindfulness and wisdom create the conditions to begin to untangle this tangle. Like the patience we need to allow that. Our, our minds kind of want to go with, yep, there's, there's a tangle, let me cut it out. You know, that's a knot. I need to cut that out. Well, then we end up with a hole in our cloth. Got a slightly different analogy going here. <laughs> so we got this tangle and it's like, yeah, get, you know, just cut it out. And then we got this hole, you know. Another way to explore. It's like, it's not, there's nothing inherent, there's nothing, you know, it, there's nothing in there that's, it's, it's the tangle that's the struggle, that's the suffering. 
the confused understanding around both love and truth. That's the suffering. And mindfulness and wisdom begin to untangle that tangle. The threads don't change. The threads untangle. And we have a more clear, in any suffering that we're seeing, there is a thread for love to be, it's almost like it gets released through that meeting with mindfulness and wisdom. That, you know, that all those threads are tangled up and we can't feel the love in there. It's all reactivity. But as the mindfulness begins to untangle that, we feel, we recognize the love and we recognize the truth. every single kind of suffering we're having contains both pointers to that or we can just use the threads again threads it's a threads towards love and truth and partly because of that i think partly because of of that um the nature of our reactivity is bound up with love and truth. You know, that when we, when we try to go in there and say, yep, this reactivity, got to get rid of it, got to, you know, throw it away, got to figure out how to cut it out. You know, I used to have this feeling about my self-hatred and my anger. It's like, I need to find the edges of it. I need to get a scalpel and I need its cancer. It's got to go. That was my, my, my view of it. And then I began to understand something different. Because that pat, those patterns of reactivity are, are bound up with love and truth. And those would like to be understood and seen. And so this is another way that there's a natural movement in the direction of love as we understand our suffering. More times than I can speak to as I really met something. It was not only the love I found and the, the kind of the sense of ease in the observing, but as something released, it's like, oh my gosh, the whole structure of that is connected to the wish to be happy. Wow. There's, there's a deep wish to be happy, and I'm landing in that. Right? There's just like the, the mind is taking that up. It's recognizing that. And then the sutta goes on to point to, even with these beautiful states of mind, there's no place for clinging to those. Any kind of clinging creates a tangle. 
And so it doesn't mean that these beautiful states would stop arising because they're not clung to. In fact, just the opposite. The less clinging, the more naturally there's the possibility for their arising. This, this final pointer here to not clinging even to the wholesome states. This is pointed to as being freedom. When we fully understand that. Now my understanding of this whole process is that there's a lot of little kind of kind of mini untanglings that happen, small pieces of that that happen, recognitions of the naturalness of the arising of love, moments of the feelings of the expansiveness of that, the concentration, the abiding in that, and the recognition, oh yeah, oh, it hurts to cling to this. That it's very natural for that to unfold, but that it doesn't feel to me like you know the first time my mind really understood that it's like what I understood in that moment is wow there's still a lot of work to do it's not it's not done yet and so to me it feels like this is a wash rinse repeat (laughs) (laughs) wash rinse repeat. Kind of practice. And yet, the confidence really keeps us motivated. And the, the, the understanding, the direction, those moments, those pointers to freedom. little tastes of that release. So let's just sit for a few minutes. 